I don't know what's real. I don't know what's not real. Limited Capacity is a collection of six darkly amusing stories about the mysterious ways we interact with the internet and with each other. There's something going on with him. It's like an act. I don't trust him. What? You're staring at me like I should say something, but I don't really know what to do here. That's the whole name of the game. Don't talk about how the town isn't real. Do you understand? Limited Capacity. Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. We're back. It's you and I today, Brian. Uh, Jer is uh, Jer is with us on this plane on this earth, but he is not. He's, he's not with he us. No longer with us today, um, and uh, but still alive. He is. Uh, he's not feeling very well. But um, we are back for another great episode, and we are joined by our new friend Alicia Smith. Uh, Alicia is the executive director of Dyslexia Canada and the past president of the International Dyslexia Dyslexia Association Ontario. Alicia is dyslexic. Dys- Man, I am messing that up. Alicia is dyslexic herself and the parent of a brilliant child with dyslexia. She brings a personal and passionate perspective to her advocacy work. I you know it's you know it's really funny. So it's, fascinating. I'm but, so interested to talk to you today, Alicia. Go, go, go interrupt me, Brian. It's interrupt. it's funny that you uh, you stumbled over the word dyslexia because before we started um, recording this morning, um, I was talking to Taylor and and he said to me, "Isn't it?" funny how hard it is to spell the word dyslexia like is, is I, did, that, I did kind of I, I did go there must be an easier way to spell this <laughs> it's completely cruel I agree it's completely cruel that that's the word that is chosen for this and you know as a dyslexic person I'm an avid user of you know Grammarly like Grammarly is a huge thing totally. and they send you that report every week you know yes. about your all your word choices and your most common errors. And every single week, my most common error is misspelling the word dyslexia. (laughs) (laughs) They actually have a, they have a column and they're like, you've never spelled this word, right? (laughs) And and not only that, I never sell it the same way twice. (laughs) 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 Yeah. Because how many, it's like a, it's like, um, you know, if you have like a four or like a six, like a six number code, there's like however many million, uh, different combinations. I guess that wouldn't be the same for words, but um, but like there's probably a lot of ways that you can go about that. Um, so I gave that I gave a very simple overview or a very simple tr- introduction to you. Um, uh, let let us know what have I what have I inevitably missed in this introduction? Tell us about your yourself, Alicia. Sure. Well, um, first of all, thanks for inviting me to chat with you today. Um, I think your introduction pretty much sums up what I, uh, you know, what it is that I do. I'm the executive director of Dyslexia Canada, and I'm a person who has dyslexia myself. Um, I got involved with uh, dyslexia advocacy in general because, as a person with dyslexia, I honestly I knew I had dyslexia. I was identified as having dyslexia when I was in high school, but I was never even really equipped to know exactly what it was or how to advocate for myself or how to speak about it. 
And so it wasn't until my own child was identified that I really realized that there was this need for more public conversation, better awareness about what it actually is and and what can be done to support Mm -hmm. people Mm -hmm. to sort of break the silence. So that's why I am doing what I do and why I'm so excited to talk to you today about it. I'm I'm really curious. I feel like this is one of those conversations um, where stigma is going to play a big part. Uh, like I, I, I know like broadly and sort of vaguely what dyslexia is from the sort of like cult, like culturally in the zeitgeist, like how people refer to it. But I feel like oftentimes you'll hear people, you know, who are, who are writing something down or typing something out and they make a spelling error, error and they're like, Oh, I'm totally dyslexic. I can't spell anything right. Um, when really they probably or might not have a diagnosis of actually being dyslexic in the same way that, you know, somebody might say, Oh, I'm totally OCD right now because they're, they're cleaning their house and trying to be really neat about it. Um, is that from your experience, is stigma a big part of the advocacy work that you do trying to reduce that? Yeah, definitely the stigma piece and also clearing up a lot of misconceptions about which dyslexia is. So Uh, You were talking about the spelling piece there. That's actually pretty accurate in terms of one of the things that people with dyslexia struggle with is spelling for sure. Uh, But a lot of the times in the sort of popular ideas of dyslexia, um, people think it's about flipping letters around or seeing letters move around the page or seeing things backwards or in reverse. Um, So that is something that we're really trying to clear up because that isn't what dyslexia is. It's really... Um, a, a difference in brain structure that makes it more difficult for people to learn how to read, write, and spell accurately and quickly. And that can really, it's uh, really slow people down. But because of other popular ideas about reading in general, like there is an idea that all smart people learn to read really easily and that, you know, smart people can all spell things, you know, so there, this stigma comes in when you're a person who struggles with the learning to read and spell it gets um, wrapped up with ideas about your intelligence and how you see yourself, which aren't accurate at all. Like individuals with dyslexia um, are, you know, every bit as smart as everyone else. There's no link between dyslexia and intelligence. So there are lots of very, very intelligent people who have horrendous spelling, uh, like I do, and uh, Mm -hmm. who struggled with learning to read when they were little. But because that hasn't been discussed very much, there really truly is this stigma and it, it impacts you know, those of us with dyslexia, like there's a huge amount of shame that I mean, I still feel as an adult when I have to go and, you know, uh, write something on the fly, like fill out a, you know, a congratulations card to somebody or something like that, you know, I know it's going to look like it was written by a toddler. Mm. And it's really hard to shake that. Mm. Um, And there's also that stigma and that shame really helps people from prevents people from asking for the help that they need or the help that their kids could benefit from that could really make their lives so much better. Um, so that's why I think it's really important to have these conversations and, and clear some of that stuff up. Um, mm. When you, so you, you said that you learned that you, that you had a, a, a diagnosis of dyslexia in high school. And, and so, you know, obviously I'm, I'm assuming I'm making an assumption here, but I, I'm making the assumption that dyslexia is something that, is sort of inherent within you from uh, that, that sort of shows itself as you begin to start to learn to read and write and those things. But high school is obviously well beyond that point. Um, and so what, 
what were the things that up and from the, the kind of like your early days of going to school and reading and writing and all that stuff to the point where you got um, diagnosed, you know, was there something where, where you like, I know I don't read and write like other people. I know that there's something that I have difficulty with or was it like a total surprise and it, it was a, a huge revelation for you? Um, I, I would say that I managed to fly under the radar um, when I was younger. Things were definitely harder for me and I didn't really understand why they were hard, right? So it was very frustrating, like I had a lot of frustration in early elementary school. Um, but I also worked really hard. So like with dyslexia, learning to read is harder, but it doesn't mean that you can't read, right? It just means that reading is going to take longer. Writing takes longer, all of those things. So I did work very hard and I had to put in so much more work to get the grades uh, than other kids. That was really mm -hmm. frustrating, mm -hmm. um, especially since I like I felt like I was smart and that I understood things, but I couldn't understand why it why it took me so long. So it wasn't until high school that um, that was explained to me that I you know had some testing done and that sort of thing. But at the same time, it wasn't a huge relief because they didn't really explain to me what dyslexia was. They just sort of said, well, this is what's going on. And what we're going to do is we're just going to give you extra time. That's it. Mm. Um, there was nothing beyond that for me at that point. Um, but I think a lot of, of uh, kids really do sort of cope well and fly under the radar. Um, but a lot really don't and are, are really struggling. And it's it's really unfortunate because it shouldn't be happening. Like we can actually screen children now. And, you know, when I was a little kid in the eighties, we didn't necessarily have the screening tools we do now, but we've had screening tools for over 20 years where we could actually look at the pre-reading skills of children when they're in, you know, pre-kindergarten, kindergarten, and look at the early markers and warning signs that are indicative that, you know, these kids are at risk for dyslexia. It's not a diagnosis, but it's a flag of risk. You know, and if we do that, then we can get in there when they're in kindergarten and we can provide them with additional support so they don't have to struggle and, and be frustrated the way that I was. Mm -hmm. um, it Sorry, go ahead. Oh, I was going to say it, it. that was the most frustrating part for me with my son was discovering that that was the case. So, you know, I, I knew how, what my experience was. I knew that I felt like if it had been identified earlier, it would have been better um, but when he started school, even though he's only 15 now, but, you know, he started school in, uh, I don't even know what year he started school in, but when he did, <laughs> you know, I identified to the teachers that, you know, I wasn't identified with dyslexia until I was in high school. I know mm -hmm. it's hereditary. You know, I think that, you know, please take extra care and, and and check out what's going on with him. And then we started noticing that there were challenges, but we kept getting told essentially, well, we can't do any testing until he's in grade three. We can't really do anything to to do extra support until he's had this period of time basically to fail first. Um, oh, and I didn't wow. know as a dyslexic person that that wasn't true. So that was what really when I when I finally my son got to grade three and we got the testing done and sure enough, he's dyslexic. Huh. Um, and then I started to learn about, you know, these early screening tools that have existed for over 20 years and the possibility that that has. That's what really turned me into a, an advocate because the impact on kids of, as they're struggling is just horrendous. Mm -hmm. What are the um, what are some of those markers? Because I I, I have a I, my, I have a daughter who's just a little older than a year and a half, and 
She can't and, read yet. And she she can't read yet. Um <laughs> Um, which is really frustrating for me. Um, and, uh, and, and I, uh, like, for example, I was, I am looking, I was looking up last night, like, what are some of the, some of the, the signs and things that I should be looking for to, to know when she is seeming like she's ready to be potty trained. And, and I was looking at some of these signs and I was like, man, some of these are hard to, to pick out. Like, like what? Is it, can um, you give an example? Um, one of them was like that. Sh- uh, what was one of them that was really hard? I can't. I actually, there was there was five of them and two of them. I was like, I think I see those pretty clearly. And then there was two or three of them that I was like, man, I have no idea if that's because it, it, it sort of pertained to things that I was like, she can't even do those things yet. She can't even do the expression thing that you're telling me I need to look for. Like in order juggle to know. three balls in the air right. at the same right. time. Right. <laughs> but so what, so what I'm, so, so I, I think there's so many things within kids that is, it's hard. It's really hard, especially if it's, if it's your first child to be able to know like, what is, what is, uh, what is like normal development um, in quotations or like whatever those milestones are and like what are the variations or like what like what's a standard deviation one way or the other I have no idea and some of those things are just really hard as a parent to pick out I'm assuming these screening things though they happen with um, it's like a, it, it would be something that would, would it be something that a parent is looking for or would it be something that you know you would go to a professional or would happen in like a clinical setting so the the um, those are all really good questions. So I, I guess I'll answer them in order. So the first one around the early warning signs and like the things to look for as a parent, right? So we actually at the Dyslexia Canada website we have a list of of things that parents can look for, and we also have um, checklists for parents that we um, at different ages. Like here are some some things that you can look for. Um, those are actually like printed checklists that we send those out to schools and libraries and doctors' offices across Canada to hand out to parents to kind of look at, but some of the big ones to sort of look for in a, in a young child, like preschool age child are really around um, use of language. So one thing is that individuals with dyslexia often really have a difficulty in accurately hearing the different sounds in words. So again, people think dyslexia is visual and it's actually more linked to auditory processing and that sort of thing. You need to be able to accurately hear all of the individual sounds in a word if you're going to be able to map those sounds onto letters so that you can read it or spell it. So in in the case of my son, for example, there were lots of things that he said that I thought were really cute, uh, but were actually kind of warning signs of that there was something going on, right? That's exactly what I mean. I'm like, what's cute and what's something that I should be like, oh, that's a sign. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So like he would say the word pretzel instead of pretzel. Like he thought there was an N sound in, in the word pretzel, right? Um, crayons. He would always call them crowns, which we thought were, again, very cute, but he just, he wasn't hearing those sounds, even with yes. correction, that sort of thing. He had some difficulties with pronunciation, which, you know, could be a speech issue, but it could also end up being indicative of, of dyslexia happening. Um, so those are sort of like pre, um, pre-reading type um, warning signs. Um, also really a difficulty with with playing with language. So like rhyming. So a lot of, you know, little kids games are rhyming games. You might play, you know, a game. And uh, that was a concept that it was, was very difficult for him to wrap his head around. And that, again, is indicative of, of kids with dyslexia. 
is a difficulty with rhyming. Hearing the beginning sounds like if you were to play a game with your child where you're like, I'm going to say um, a word and then you're going to say another word that starts with the same first sound. Like I say like pink and then you're expecting the kid might say rink or something like that. Or sorry, that would be rhyming or uh, something else that starts with pink um, pop, you know, and they they couldn't quite peel off that first sound and mm. and come up with a, an accurate word for you. Those are sort of the early ones. And then as kids are getting a little bit older in sort of the kindergarten age, it's really around difficulties with learning the alphabet, right? So if they're having an extreme difficulty with remembering the different letters um, and being able to accurately identify them, learning how to print them, all of those things, like that is, again, an early warning sign. Uh, And then in terms of the screening, how that works, that's actually something that can be done in school by a classroom teacher. It doesn't need to be done in a clinical setting. Um, it's the sort of thing parents could look into it, but it'd be really better to be done at school by a teacher. So one of the things that we're advocating for at Dyslexia Canada is for provincial governments across the country to implement mandatory universal screening for kids from kindergarten to grade two, Mm. um, so that we can get that done. So there's been a bit of movement on that, which is exciting. Ontario is, um, going to be implementing mandatory screening next year. Uh, this year, they're training all the teachers or school boards have been provided funding to train teachers. Some to, some of them are doing it. Some of them are not yet doing it, right. but uh, that's happening. Alberta has put in place universal screening as well. And uh, and we're working we're working on convincing the rest of the provinces to do the same. I'm, I'm curious now, like to go back to your early experience and contrast that with um, what's being done now. In the case where you're able to detect that um, somebody may have dyslexia, uh, you screen them and they they screen positive for it. What sort of uh, supports are there now that there weren't when um, you were in high school? Um, actually, it's a little bit the opposite, to be totally true. Like, I feel like my experience of learning to read was actually a little bit easier than that for my son. Um, just because of the approach to teaching reading in school. So I'm old enough that um, when I went to elementary school, it was in the early 80s, we'll say that they, uh, they were still teaching, explicitly teaching kids things like spelling lessons, they were explicitly teaching how to sound out words using phonics skills and things like that. So that was my base layer that I was getting, I was getting an extra dose of that kind of stuff at home from my mom. Whereas when my son started school in Ontario and and things have changed in Ontario, but not everywhere, uh, the general approach to teaching kids to read was not that. It was based on uh, a different approach to teaching kids to read that started from the whole language movement. And so there wasn't as much of an emphasis on teaching kids how to break apart words, how to identify the individual sounds, how to map those sounds onto letters. Um, they had taken out explicit instruction in printing and writing and that sort of thing. So I might have thought it was boring when I was a child that I you know, had to sit there and like learn how to write the letter A over and over and over again. But doing that was actually really um, helpful, right? So because mm-hmm. of that, the the struggles and the experience that I had, I don't think were as extreme. I know they weren't. It wasn't as extreme as the struggles and the, the ex- difficulties that my son had. The, the um, that that movement was it. Um, I think I've heard something about this. I'm not sure if this is right, but yeah, what, um, what was is, it was it like a a move from like phonics of of sounding things out and learning the spellings to to like pattern recognition or or something like that? 
Yeah, so it um, it's called balanced literacy now. It comes out of this idea of whole language. But what it was is the idea that skilled readers, when they're reading, aren't actually looking at all of the letters in the word. That instead, what they're doing is they're predicting what word comes next based on the context like of the... Yeah, based on the context, the syntax, or maybe a sampling of the letters, just looking at the first letter or the last letter. Mm-hmm. So that's an idea that was first floated in the 1960s. And it took a while before it really took on, it took off in education, but it was sort of the late 80s, 90s that it really took over in education in a big way. Uh, the problem is, is that that's not actually how people read. Like it was a, it was a theory. It sounded nice. It, it came out. It was studied quite thoroughly in the 90s as it was becoming popular in schools. So they, you know, put it into schools before actually proving it. When they went to do the research, they found out that it's not how kids learn to read. But once you release something like that into the world, it's really hard to to walk it back. Right. So we've been trying to walk it back for 30 years now. And it's been uh, it's it's been a disaster, like a complete and unmitigated disaster Mm -hmm. on the the reading achievement for kids, uh, like not just in Canada, but in the English speaking world. I can imagine. Uh, Do you guys remember Hooked on Phonics? Yeah. Man, I loved Hooked on Phonics. Yeah. Yeah, it was awesome. It's actually it's actually blowing my mind because we, when you kind of explained that, when you were explaining what that theory is, I was like, yeah, I guess maybe maybe I do some of that. But then at the same time, I I read quite slowly, but I read a lot and like reading and writing is a very is like a strong suit of mine. And 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 then I was thinking about Hooked on Phonics and I was like, huh. It's so interesting. Because I, I find that sounds like a really hard, it sounds like a really hard idea to convey to children, to, that, to, that, that that is the way that your brain is in taking information. I mean, I feel like that's, I feel like that, that would be kind of hard for, for a, a, a fairly large swath of adults you mean balance literacy this idea of yeah to to convey the idea that you are that 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 you know your brain is like filling in the spaces between words and and you know you're 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 basically you're 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 filling in words based on based on like a a, a selection of letters in the word you know what's funny is i so i have adhd and i feel like that is more how my brain works um i don't know if that would would have been more beneficial as a as a kid and learning, but but um, I know that there are ADHD reader tools that mm-hmm. bolden uh, bold the first two letters of each word, and it can greatly increase your um, the speed at which you can read. Um, but I I don't know that it increases my level of comprehension. Mm. Yeah, it's very the, interesting. Yeah, it is interesting, and the way that they um, use it as an instructional approach for teaching kids is also kind of like caught up in this idea that learning to read is something that happens naturally, like just through the act of reading. Mm. So we don't need to explicitly teach kids things like how letters and sounds relate to each other. Mm -hmm. And so the way that works in the classroom is that reading instruction for the last twenty years or so has really been um, based around these sets of books that are. Um, set up in a way that they're uh, that kids can read them independently without really reading or without really being readers, and then they sort of take away those scaffolds over time. So the beginning books are super repetitive, right? So I don't know if you guys, uh, oh, you did say you have a kid, but I don't know if you've seen these little books because this was new to me when my child started school. 
but it would be like the first book would be like at the zoo, you know, I see a monkey and there'd just be a picture of a monkey on the page and that's it. I see a giraffe and there's just a picture of a giraffe and that's the whole book, right? So you go mm. through the book first with the kid and you tell them the pattern, I see a, and then they guess based on the picture, right? And they just work their way through the book and they feel like they're readers. And the idea is that by doing this over time, that the kids will either memorize the words that are there or that they'll tease those words apart and they will come up with their own sort of understanding of how the S in the word C, you know, represents this sound and the double E is a long E, like that they're supposed to tease that apart on their own, mm -hmm. as opposed to the phonics approach where we start with the sounds and the letters and we show them how those work and glue right. them together to make words and then... So it's like a top-down approach as opposed to a bottom-up approach. And it's, uh, you know, very, very, very confusing for a lot of kids. They really mm -hmm. never do um, come up with their own yeah. set of understanding of how spelling yeah, I, works. I can, I can imagine the last word in that book is, I see a xylophone. Well, it's good that we're not trying to see? sound this out. It's like, <laughs> it's very interesting. Like it reminds me of, this is sort of, this is only at best adjacent to the topic of our conversation, but. Um, it does have to do. It does have to do with reading. My when when my wife was pregnant with our first um, daughter, she was reading a book called um, I think it was called Growing Up Baby. I think it was what it was called. It was an American woman who moved to Paris in her twenties. Uh, ended up staying there, living there, had a child there, and it was like this contrast of um, child rearing in North America versus child rearing in her experience in France. And there was like a lot of interesting um, tidbits out of there. And one of them was the, the sort of like uh, race to the, the, the in, a, in North America, this like race to teach your children things younger and younger and younger. It was like, you know, math and reading in particular, like the, you know, if we just, if we just teach them these things younger and younger and younger bit by bit, then they'll get smarter faster and faster and faster. And, you know, we'll just have this like, you know, army of, you know, economic machines <laughs> to, you know, to churn out whatever. And, um, and, and it was like, well, actually what, what ends up happening is when you teach a child something like reading before they're ready to start learning, they become so frustrated internally with the fact that they can't do it because they're not ready that they, it, they ultimately end up learning to read at a much slower pace and much much later than they might other than they otherwise most likely would have because their association with reading is that they hate it because their association is automatically that they can't do it and it slows down development in children for things like reading and, and math in particular i think it was so i just it just struck me as um on the reading um on the reading thing it's just something like really interesting about the way in which we think about kids and teaching them, teaching them things that, that whole um, top down approach versus bottom up approach and how you teach children. I'm, I mean, again, I have a year and a half year old, so I'm like very interested in all of this stuff. And I'm kind of like a sponge when it comes to trying to figure out what are the ways in which, you know, are most beneficial for my kid to kind of like come into the world and learn things. This has already been like, this is just a personal benefit to me. This whole thing so far. <laughs> I, I wanted I wanted to quickly come back to uh, the point about the supports that are that are in place now, or at least 
what could be beneficial to someone who is screening and caught early, knowing that screening is is a focus right now. Um, what yeah, what are some of the supports that could be in place? Sure. So, I mean, I think the first thing that could be in place, and and again, this is our mission at Dyslexia Canada, is getting these things into place, is that the schools actually provide um, reading instruction that aligns with what we know about how children learn, right? So getting down to that, you know, back to what you were saying about are the kids developmentally ready? Um, you know, the there's a lot that we know about what is appropriate for kids in kindergarten. And a lot of it is making sure that they have those foundational skills in place. So things like being able to hear the sounds and words, you know, so that's that's a piece that can be taught. You know, you can do instruction and you can also do intervention for the kids that are really struggling with that making sure that they really know their alphabet before we give them books and expect them to read entire books. Like, let's just make sure they know their alphabet. You know, that's a, a good place to start too. So in terms of what could be in place, the first thing could be that classroom instruction, making sure that we're actually using evidence-based approaches that are developmentally appropriate for all of the kids right across the board. And then for those kids that are identified through screening as being at risk for having difficulty. And I should clarify too, it's not just a risk of difficulty due to dyslexia, but those screeners actually catch kids that are at risk of having difficulties with literacy for other reasons, right? Mm -hmm. All of those kids need to have intervention early for whatever it is that they are at risk for. You know, there are interventions that can be put in place um, to help them so that they can stay on track with their peers so that they don't end up falling behind and getting really frustrated. Um, so that's really what could and should be happening in the in that preventative piece for little, little kids. Mm -hmm. um, but for older kids, like we have an entire generation of students that didn't get that foundational instruction, really struggled with reading. And many of them have just been pushed through the system all the way along. Like it is not uncommon for me to talk to high school student high school teachers that have students in grade nine that are reading at a grade three level, for example. And there are intervention programs that those kids should have access to as well. Unfortunately, most places they don't have access to them through the education system. So mm -hmm. making those programs available is really one of our big missions as well. Hi, I'm Jesse Cruikshank. I host the number one comedy podcast called Phone a Friend. Girl, let's phone a friend. Not only do I break down the biggest stories in pop culture with guests like Dan Levy and members of InSync, I do it with my own personal boy band singing jingles throughout because it's my show. It's your show, girl. New episodes of Phone a Friend. Yeah. Drop Thursdays wherever you get your podcasts. So work it, girl. Yeah, work it. Okay, that's enough. It sounds so challenging to because like the basis of our education is is like basically built on the ability to read and write. And, uh, you know, I I personally struggled with that in when I made the transition from going to uh, university. I, I just found that like all of a sudden there was a lot of reading that had to be done on your own time. And as someone who was undiagnosed at the time with ADHD, like finding being able to prioritize that time to sit down and read was 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 really challenging for me and then not knowing that information going into class and 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 struggling because I wasn't able to do the task I feel like I I have an appreciation for how hard school can be 
um, when you're not able to do that. Mm-hmm. Like how how can the system? Because it seems like that is such a systemic problem. I, I don't want to say problem necessarily. I mean, it's certainly a problem for these people. But but how how do we accommodate this large portion of people who who might be struggling with these things? It is a systemic problem. Like I think problem is the right word. And it, it expands beyond students with dyslexia. Um, just the general approach that we have to teaching people to be literate and the skills that they need so that they can read at the university level and keep up. Like we're just not doing a very good job of it. We've got um, multiple sources of data that show that across Canada, currently we've got about a third of students who are 15 years old in grade 11 that haven't yet reached the level of literacy that they need, according to Statistics Canada, to be successful in post-secondary or to participate in the, you know, fully participate in the modern economy is the term they use. Mm. That's a third. That is that is huge. So yes, it's a, it is a systemic issue. And that's why we've been addressing this as a human rights issue, right? Because as you said before, like everything in education is based on your ability to read and write. Like that is how you learn across subjects. And that's the skill that you need so that you can be successful in university. So Dyslexia Canada has worked with um, parents in three provinces now to bring these issues forward to human rights commissions. And we've had, um, well, one full public inquiry and two systemic inquiries that have been launched. So the biggest one was in Ontario, (laughs) excuse me, where in uh, 2019, the Ontario Human Rights Commission launched a full public inquiry looking at what the province was doing in terms of teaching all kids to read, how they were assessing kids' ability to read, what they were providing in terms of intervention and accommodations and things like that in education. And the conclusion of that was, it was stark. They concluded that Ontario is systematically failing kids with reading disabilities and many other students. So the only solution is full on system change is what the solution is, including a real overhaul of teacher education and teacher training, Mm. because that was what what I experienced. I was hugely surprised, Um, but this is also what the Human Rights Commission found. They audited all of the faculties of education in Ontario and looked at what are teachers being taught about how reading actually works, like the, the science of reading, what we understand about reading development, developmental milestones, all those things. And they discovered that teachers are not being provided with the actual accurate, up-to-date information. They're still being trained to believe that reading develops as that person from 1967 said it did, that it's something that develops naturally when kids are ready and that you know, people predict words based on uh, cues and context and all of these other sorts of things. And you know, as a parent, um, bringing my child into the education system, like my kids had amazing teachers, like they were wonderful human beings who I could tell were working really, really hard. They really liked my son because he's a charming little fellow. And so they were working extra hard trying to help him. And you just trust that they're the experts, they know what they're doing. And they've, you know, they've been prepared to do this. Like, I'm dyslexic myself, like I can barely spell how am I like, who am I to say how they should be teaching my child to read, right? So to discover the huge gap in that Mm -hmm. knowledge that like, you know, that this information has been out there for literally decades, but it has never been a part of teacher training. Mm -hmm. It is not, you know, what they know. And they've been actively telling parents and and doing things that are counterproductive for kids like that was the biggest and most eye-opening piece to me so 
the systemic change that has to happen really has to start with that, with teacher education and, uh, you know, really looking at what's happening in those faculties of education and why. It's, you, um, it's really interesting too, because it feels like such a loss for society to not acknowledge that, that shortcoming in the sense that like you, you said something right at the very beginning, um, that it really stood out to me, um, which is, it's not a, your ability to read and write is not a metric of how intelligent you are. Um, we can, you know, we can test people on their reading comprehension and their ability to write. And, you know, we could say that somebody who does a really great job at that and communicates really well through that medium is intelligent, but that doesn't mean that that is the only type of intelligence. And it makes me think of, I'll butcher this, but that, uh, the picture of like a fish trying to climb a, a ladder or whatever. And it's like, if we judged a fish by its ability to, to climb a tree, it would live its life thinking that it was dumb or something like that. That's, that's pretty, pretty, yeah, that's pretty something accurate. like that. Yeah. You can yeah. And, and I've felt I, I, like I've felt a bit of that way with ADHD in the sense that there are things that I really struggle with. And, you know, when <laughs> teachers um, criticize you for, not performing well in those areas, then you would sort of internalize that and think that that means that you're not smart. Um, but the, that's not the reality. The re reality is that there are lots of, you know, brilliant different ways that our brains work and, and it seems really frustrating and like a, a massive oversight that, that this is not being acknowledged. Um, to that, to that point, and I'm, I'm interested in what, what you think about this, Alicia, I feel like I feel like over the years, and this is like, this is fully anecdotal, um, but you just, you just start to see lots of creative people being like, I, I'm dyslexic. It seems like, it seems to me like cr creative people, people that we kind of put in that box of artistic creative, um, there seems to be a high, anecdotally, there seems to be a high prevalence of dyslexia. Um, do you, th it, do, if, so A, does that make, does that feel correct to you or is that just totally anecdotal and and if if possibly true would that be a result of you know that people are not getting the 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 the, the training or the education or learning um you know to 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 participate in quotations in what the can statistics canada calls the whatever they call it the modern economy machine um of which I am a proponent of. Um, uh, and so they are, they are therefore by default sort of like pushed more often pushed towards um, maybe like more non-traditional uh, career choices or things like that, that, that steer them in, 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 a, in maybe more of a creative direction where post-secondary education is not as, uh, as held as, as such a, uh, as such a crucial um, thing to, to have. Yeah, it's, it's really hard to say, to be totally honest. Like I definitely have seen that trend as well in recent years, as we've been successful in, in getting people to start talking about dyslexia and start to um, break the silence a bit. I am seeing lots of, as you say, creative people, uh, lots of entrepreneurs, lots of people in non-traditional careers coming forward and, um, you know, talking about their dyslexia, which is amazing. And I'm, I'm very glad to see that. I'm not sure if that is because there is a higher prevalence in those careers, which it might be true, like your theory there. Like I, I've never seen statistical evidence to, yeah. to you know, argue no data. for or against. <laughs> no data. 
It could also be because people who are in traditional careers are still afraid to speak out, right? Like right. that's the other thing. Talking to a number of people who do work in large corporations who have those sort of like, you know, traditional job jobs, um, they still are under a lot of um, fear or still experience a lot of fear of disclosing mm -hmm. because, you know, they're trying to climb the ladder within an organization where you've got somebody else and their ideas and opinions. Whereas if you're in a creative profession, or if you're an entrepreneur, you know, it doesn't impact you in the same way in terms yeah. of you're not trying to crime somebody else's career ladder. So I'm not 100% sure where I fall down on that one. And that idea of like, um, you know, the successful dyslexic as well, like there's lots, you know, like there, there are lots of intelligence and successful dyslexic people. And I, I like to encourage all of them to, to talk and share. But there's also a lot that's unknown about the individuals with dyslexia who never received support or didn't have those additional pr protective factors of very high intelligence that helped them to to cope, right, and to to move forward. So another like very troubling statistic is around the prevalence of low literacy in prisons, right? Like this is when we don't talk about as much. But the Canadian Association of Chiefs of Police did a study a few years ago, and they found that 65% of incarcerated people in Canada had less than a grade eight level of literacy, right? And we know that dyslexia is the most common cause of reading difficulties. So there's a pretty good chance that a lot of the people there are dyslexic as well. Um, but because there hasn't been a national program where we're really screening kids and identifying everybody, it's really difficult to have any sense of accurately where it's shaking out mm -hmm. is one of the hopes in in screening to be able to provide that data and say and to be able to like actually point to it and go this is i mean this is as big of a problem as we know it to be and possibly even bigger i think we already have the data to show that it's a huge problem the the big hope with screening is really to get support for kids when they're mm -hmm. little right it's just it's more about that individual support and also making sure that um, at a system level that we're exposing problems in the system, right? So especially when you're screening kids that are in grade one or grade two, you know, the screening isn't a one and done kind of screening test. It actually happens multiple times per year. Like ideally, you'd be screening kids at the beginning of the year, the middle of the year and the end of the year, because the milestones they should be meeting change as they get older, right? Because they're developmental milestones, right? So if you've got um, a group of kids that that come in and, you know, 80% of the kids are on track at the beginning of the year in grade two, and then you see that at the end of grade two, now we only have 40% of kids that are on track, you can see that there's a problem in the system, right? Like that's not a problem with those kids. So the screening is really important for problem solving for the individual kids, but it's also really important for just problem solving at the school and the and the system level. Mm -hmm. Have you thought a lot about what a like if you could totally reimagine the system so that it was less reliant on on solely on reading and writing comprehension? What what could that potentially look like? Well, I think the way that I reimagine the system is a system where we make sure that everybody can be successful with reading and writing comprehension, right? So there's a lot of data now to show that over 95% of people can be very successful with that if they receive the appropriate instruction at the right time. That at the right time piece is really important too. We've got to start when kids are young. 
Um, so that's really the way that I reimagine the system is that we're using evidence from, you know, the last 20, 30 years of science. There's been lots and lots of fantastic research done here in Canada and all around the world that could really have solved this problem ages ago if we just actually put the evidence into practice. So mm -hmm. that's really how I envision things going forward. Mm -hmm. How, uh, what are, what are the numbers? How common is it, um, to like how many in a hundred people are, 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 I was going to say developing dyslexia, but you said it's hereditary. So I, I suppose it's, I suppose developing is maybe not the right word to use, but what are the, what are the stats? So the stats that we use at Dyslexia Canada are between 10 and 20%, which I recognize is a huge range. That's a hundred percent different, right? But, but it's the a reason, lot no matter what. <laughs> it's a lot no matter what. Yeah. And the reason for that range, there's a couple of reasons. Um, it is hereditary, yes, but it's also environmental. It's one of those huh. things that um, it, it, there's a confluence of things that happen, right? Mm -hmm. So there are protective factors that can be in place for kids that can help kids who are at risk of dyslexia never end up meeting the diagnostic criteria. And that the biggest protective factor is instruction, right? It's instruction and early intervention. So if we are successful in catching the kids who are at risk for dyslexia in kindergarten, and we start to provide them with that early, early intervention, we should have a huge reduction in the number of kids who actually would meet the diagnostic criteria down the road. Mm. So it what doesn't is, mean that their brains aren't organized the way they were when they were born. It just means they no longer meet that the threshold. I mean, that is a, that like, again, 10 is, 10 is, 10 is big and 20 is gigantic. I mean, that's, those are no matter what way you cut it, that's, um, that is a, that is a large slice of the population that is not getting what they need to be successful in all of the things that we have come to establish as um, important in terms of like a, a communal societal uh, um, contribution. That's pretty, that's really big. What, what is the diagnostic criteria? So it's um, okay. And again, there are different ways that people diagnose dyslexia. So the way that it is in the, the DSM is around um, specifically around difficulties with reading. So they use a bunch of psychrometric testing, looking at reading ability, spelling ability, things like that. And it has to fall with below a certain threshold, right? Um, there are other de uh, definitions that have that. And then they also look at a discrepancy with IQ. So they say that these difficulties with reading are unexpected because the person meets this threshold of having above um, average to above average intelligence. Um, that second way of doing it is um, has been called into question as being accurate, like the the IQ piece, right? Um, so one of the things that in Ontario, the Human Rights Commission recommended was that we stop using the this second layer, the IQ testing, because there's so many challenges with IQ testing itself in terms of, you know, um, cultural bias and IQ testing, that sort of thing. Um, and it was also being used that IQ discrepancy piece in education has actually been used to prevent some kids from getting intervention that need it, Right. So it's like we recognize that they are struggling with reading, but because they scored below like two points below on this arbitrary IQ test, we're not going to help them because we don't think that they qualify legally as having a learning disability. 
which there's so many different problems with that, right? Mm-hmm. So the um, the definition that that we would go with is the one from the DSM, like the Diagnostic and Standards Manual that psychologists use, and that's really based around the difficulties with reading, writing, and spelling. That's really interesting because I would have guessed that having the layer of the IQ test would help to identify people who who you know might not just meet the um, threshold of of the DSM. Uh, you should definition. watch. Um, you should watch the uh, the video, the Veritasium video on IQ testing I, and I did, all yeah. the issues with it. Yeah, it's yeah. quite fast. When and when you bring that up, I I understand that. Um, do you feel like? Uh, I mean, obviously, there's always people being sort of falling through the cracks um, in in any system. Um, is there a better way to do it, or do you do you think that there could be? Yeah. Do you think there could be a better way to do it? Yeah. Like the better way to do it really is to do it in a a response to intervention model, right? Where you're starting with the screening very young, you're providing intervention, and then you're looking to see how are the kids responding, right? So that would help to determine like which kids are struggling because they really do have this neurologically based difference that's making it um, difficult for them to learn these things when they're being provided with the appropriate instruction and the appropriate and and sufficient intervention versus the kids that are struggling because you know they came into school starting off further behind because they didn't have as many literacy experiences before or maybe they've been absent from school or whatever it is right like that's how you can tease out the difference too um, and so that is is different than waiting and relying on big, you know, send the person to a psychologist and spend thousands and thousands of dollars mm-hmm. on doing these big assessments. Um, so that's really, I think, the way that we should be moving to. In terms of your experience um, going through high school, did you did you go to university afterwards? I did for a period of time, but I actually dropped out because I, like you, could not keep up with the reading. Like I could read, but I read so much. I read so much more slowly actually improved my reading now, which is very like, that's a whole other story. But uh, when I was in university, um, I actually went to university in Halifax too. I went and I did the King's foundation year program. Nice. Um, Not in journalism. No, not in journalism, but I did, I did the foundation year program and I only picked it because it had oral exams, right? Cause I cannot write written exams. Like I really struggled with that. Mm Um, and then, of course, like there's so much reading in that program, right? So I uh, I started early. I got the reading list the year before and started like working through it. But I was just exhausted by the end of that, right? You know, just trying to keep up with all of that reading. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah. Taylor and I both, like, <laughs> we um, we didn't finish university and, and I started and did one year. And as I mentioned, I really struggled with it. Um, but I'm curious, like obviously you're, you're, you know, you're the head of an organization now. You you have to think strategically about things. I imagine that communication is a big part of of your job. Um, how have you managed to um, balance your dyslexia diagnosis with this sort of need to have to, you know, use reading and writing in your in your day to day work? Sure. Well, I'm actually like, I've always considered myself a fairly strong writer. Like it does take me a bit longer than others, but um, like oral communication has always been something that I've leaned heavily into and I kind of write the way that I speak. So that's always been fine. This job, like there's a lot of, of talking to people in this job of what I do. So I certainly do a lot of that, but I lean into things like Grammarly. Like I said at the beginning, like I'm a Mm -hmm. huge fan of that. 
Um, I also have a great team of people that I work with. So I always send things out to them to look over um, and provide feedback, that sort of thing. Um, but I mean, I think the the other thing is that, you know, abilities change over time. Like, and even as an adult, you can improve your reading ability. And that's something that um, happened for me completely accidentally, but it was probably the best thing that I ever did. When my son was born, like I was really, really motivated to make sure that he didn't have the same challenges that I did. And the only thing that I knew was a parent, because the only thing they tell you as a parent is just read to your child a lot, right? It's a read to your children. So, okay, great. So I started reading to him like the day he was born in the hospital. And I read to him out loud for hours a day, like when he was a toddler and an infant and, you know, just, just kept reading to him and reading to him and reading to him. And the process of doing that, by the time he was about three years old, like I actually started to notice huge improvements in my own reading speed. So there was like one thing that people had always told me that you should be able to do when you're reading is to like read ahead on the line so that you can, like your eyes are reading ahead from what you're saying when you're speaking out loud so that you can put the proper phrasing in place and, you know, commas and and intonation and that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. I could never do that. Like I could never even wrap my head around how people would even start to do that. <laughs> but by the time he was three, I remember I was reading him a magic treehouse book and I was like reading it. And it was like sounding like a, no a normal person reading. <laughs> I was just completely floored with myself. Um, so Afterwards, after I started getting into all the reading research, I found out like that reading out loud is the, you know, the best thing you can do to improve your reading fluency, mm. especially repeated reading. So again, like when you've got a little kid, little kids are always bringing you the same book over and over again, like read me Curious George again, right? And so yeah. I was like, giving myself a reading intervention without even knowing it essentially for, you know, for that period of time, that's just so reading funny. to him out loud. So that's really helped. Like, I don't know if I would have been able to keep up with the demands of this job 10 years ago. Um, but that experience was really good. I also basically did all of the dyslexia intervention with my son when he was learning to read. Right. So through that process, because of where we live in tiny, a small town North of, of Toronto, where there are no tutors, Actually I couldn't called get, tiny. <laughs> actually called tiny. I couldn't get a dyslexia therapist for him. So I had to learn how to do it myself. And through going through that process with him and doing it, I learned so much about how the English language works and how spelling works, all these things that for my life had been a complete mystery. And that was, it was hugely helpful as well. What are, what are the conversations like with your son around dyslexia? Oh, you know, it was, it was, uh, it was a really interesting bonding experience for us is what I'd say. Cause like I had not ever talked about my dyslexia until he was officially diagnosed and I hadn't leaned into it at all. So the two of us definitely kind of went down the rabbit hole together and that was nice. So we, we spent a lot of time reading about, um, successful people who have dyslexia. I was like constantly sharing Ted talks with him and, and different profiles of people, um, that sort of thing. And then, you know, he came like along with me on this journey of discovering everything that that I know now about, you know, how reading works and the science of reading and the disconnect between that and what's happening in the education system. You know, he was there at the launch of the Ontario Human Rights Commission's inquiry. He went and he spoke at uh, Queen's Park and he talked to our MPP all about the disconnect and and really wow. what would have been more helpful for him. So, 
yeah, it really though, um, made it very difficult for him for the rest of school. Cause he lost, like he loved his teachers as human beings, but he lost all trust in them. Right. Mm. When he realized how far removed what they were telling him was from what he actually needed. It got to the point where pretty much everything that came home, he would be asking me like, okay, do I do this? Like, is this a useful assignment that's going to help me learn? Or is this just complete and utter BS? You know, like, mm. so I had to sort of talk him into doing, um, to doing different things. So uh, it was challenging from that perspective, but he's in high school now and he's doing great. He's, um, he just got his interim report card. He was like above 95 and everything. Like he's a very wow. smart kid, but just the, um, you know, the insecurity and all of that, it took years years honestly to kind of get him to the point where he was a confident kid again speaking of the insecurity and and, and like lack of confidence one one thing i like trying to put myself in the shoes of someone who um has dyslexia who is in school you know being called on to read a, a paragraph out loud or to have to do some sort of presentation that requires doing that in front of uh, a class um did you have experiences like that? And, and did you feel uh, shame or, or, or lack confidence in, in doing that when you were called on in class? Um, definitely when it came to having to read, like I definitely have memories of having a book in front of me and like trying to count paragraphs because they're kind of going yeah. down the rows and like, okay, it's going to be this one. So I just spend the entire time reading it and reading it and reading it and reading it so that I could try and read it when it was my turn. So I'd have absolutely no idea what was going on with the rest of the reading. Right. Complete waste of time. So I do remember that and that sort of sinking sense of dread. When it came to presentations, though, like I always loved giving presentations. I just never read for any of them, right? right? Like I would just stand up and talk. And I was always happy to share what I knew orally, which is, I think, you know, not, I'm not going to generalize strengths of, of people, but there's lots of us with dyslexia who understand everything that's going on. We remember what we hear and we can participate really well if we're giving those opportunities to do it orally. So I really do encourage teachers to, you know, know your students and, and have options for how you get to express your learning. Did you ever um, share like strategies? I love a, I love a good hack. Um, and uh, <laughs> I'm wondering if you, when you, when your son got his diagnosis and you sort of went down that journey together, did you share any like hacks with him? Did, did he tell you anything that he was doing in school that you were like, dang, that, that would have been really good to know back when I was in school. Um, I don't know about a hack specifically. Like the one thing that we do really lean into though is audiobooks. And I wish that I had that option when I was in high school or in, in university is like really listening, listening to text instead of reading it or listening it, listening to it while reading it and marking it up. Mm -hmm. So that's like my biggest learning hack is that for me, like, even though I, you know, as I said, I can absolutely read now and I've even improved my reading speed. I still do better when I listen. I just do. And so, yeah, we try to get as much for him in audio as possible. And again, he can read now too. Like he mm -hmm. does read for pleasure. It's great, but he reads more slowly. And so, you know, if he's going to be able to keep up and not completely exhaust himself and also be able to do all of the other things that a teenager should be able to do, you know, leaning into audio, I think is a, is a good thing. Um, Alicia there, there's something that has really stood out to me in our conversation 
today, and it is a it's a it's a reminder of something that I already know, but something that I probably don't think about um, enough or or think about consciously enough is is you know I mentioned earlier in the show that reading and writing is something that has has come very naturally to me naturally to me over over the years, and it's something that that is a strong suit of mine. And you taught me so much about the process of learning to be able to do that, that, that can only come from the experience of somebody who struggled and just like highlighting the importance of learning from people who have had a hard time at getting to, of learning something because Mm -hmm. there's so much, there's so much wisdom in the struggle. Uh, and there's so much knowledge in that, um, that it just reminds me to try and keep learning from not from not from people who have just been able to do it but people who have really had to put in you know the the extra the extra work and not to say that we shouldn't put in uh, you know a lot of support systems to make that e- as easy as possible but even with those supports it's going to be it's it's going to be yeah. extra work no matter what and that yields uh that yields a lot of um, a lot of knowledge and, and wisdom. So I, really I, I just want to echo what Taylor's saying because I know now that he will actually spend time with his daughter actually teaching her rather than just ha- having the expectation that she'll just be able to do it because it was easy for right. him. I'll stop putting the book in front of her and going, why can't you do it? Yeah. Yeah. I'll because she is that. only one and a half. Yeah. So, which is no excuses, but no excuses, but so hopefully we've learned a little bit, at least a little bit of something today. Right. That's it. Um, (laughs) Thank you so much, Alicia. Um, I do not have that expectation of my one and a half year old daughter. Um, Thank you so much, Alicia, for for joining us uh, today. We had uh, had an awesome time learning about um, everything it is that you do at Dyslexia Canada. Um, and, uh, and, and, and your, your, your journey and, and, and your experience and the things that we can, uh, learn from and do better in education systems and in the workplace and stigma and all, and all those, all those things that we need to be thinking about. So, um, thank you for taking the time to, to join us today. Thank you for inviting me. It was a really great conversation. That is it for this week's edition of Routine Checkup. Thank you so much for tuning in, folks. It means the world to us. And if you'd like to continue listening to the podcast, you can do that right here on Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays. And of course, if you want to support the podcast further, you can leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts, or you can simply rate the podcast on your Spotify mobile app. And uh, even Better than that, why don't you tell someone that you know, tell someone that you love, tell someone that you don't know, that you listen to Sick Boy Podcast and recommend it to them because we always love those extra ears. The podcast is produced and hosted by myself, Jeremy Saunders, Brian Stever, and Taylor McGilvery. The podcast is managed by Jeffrey Lonis at Talent Bureau. The theme music for today's episode comes from Rich O'Coin. Thanks again, folks. Hope you enjoyed it, and we'll be back next week. That's it for now. My name is Jeremy, and this is Sick
For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.